We have uh, spent our time so far worshiping through song. We want to continue by worshiping through the study of God's Word. And so I want to invite you to grab a copy of uh, God's Word and put it in front of you. Um, if you brought one, um, that's awesome. If you didn't, uh, we got you covered. You can find one underneath one of the seats in front of you. And i uh, love for you to uh, see where we're at this morning. We are continuing in our series that we've been in for some time uh, in the book of Acts. And um, if you are uh, just uh, joining us, and um, uh, maybe we're here for Easter and are uh, coming, um, uh, coming back, kind of jumping in. Uh, we are in Acts chapter 17, and um, it might feel a little like, oh, wait a second, I, I feel like I've missed some, and you have, like we've, we've been uh, going through it, but I want to just sort of frame it up and catch us up uh, this morning in, in kind of what, um, what we're doing and where we're studying in, um, in Acts. Uh, the book of Acts is the story of what transpired after Jesus rose from the grave, Last week, we celebrated together as a church, how fun was that, to uh, celebrate on Easter Sunday our risen Savior, Jesus. And he appeared to uh, many, um, as many as um, a couple hundred, several hundred um, uh, people, and, and, and then he uh, said to his followers, his disciples, he said, I want you to be my witnesses. I want you to uh, go and to... Um, uh, to, to, to tell of who I am and what I've done and, um, and to um, share that not just with those around you, but um, to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts is them doing that. And it's uh, incredible um, uh, to, to look at and to see because the reality is what happened was it was a group of uneducated men and women uh, who had never really traveled very far out of their hometowns. Um, they weren't kind of trained specifically for this. They didn't have uh, any resources to speak of. Um, they were uh, just common uh, men and women. And yet what happened was this movement began and really spread through um, that entire region. I mean, it took over. And so there were cities and towns and villages in the countryside, and there's, there's followers of Jesus everywhere because of what was happening through uh, these few uh, followers of Jesus. They, they, they were his witnesses. And so what we're witnessing now and what we're in the middle of now is uh, what's known as Paul, one of, one of those who was going, his second missionary journey. Paul uh, felt this call from, from the Lord to go out and to share who, who Jesus is and what Jesus had done in, in the surrounding um, cities and in new areas that had not yet heard. And so we followed one journey. Now we're on this second journey. And um, so far we've looked at this first stop was in the city of Philippi today. He's going to continue on um, uh, on this journey, and we're going to see what he does. But to kind of frame up what, what it is, I wonder if there's ever been something that's kind of um, uh, really changed up or kind of rocked your uh, world. Uh, maybe you'd even go as far as to say that it, it's, it's turned your world upside down. Um, that's the uh, title of our um, the sermon this morning, and our time this morning is uh, Turning the World Upside Down. This is this phrase um, that was used uh, by... Um, uh, by the people looking at the church and the way that it was spreading. And they said, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Now, I was thinking about that phrase and, and what does it mean to have your world kind of turned upside down? I've had many situations or circumstances, different things that would kind of put, you know, in those categories, some more so than others. One that sort of stood out to me was um, a very quick and uh, unthought through decision that my wife and I made um, early in our marriage. Um, we made the decision on a whim. I was um, uh, doing uh, student ministry, so I was hanging out with a lot of high school students and middle school students. And one night at one of our events, um, this uh, high school student brought a little tiny 
puppy, like a few weeks old or something. Like it shouldn't have even been away from mom, I don't think. And, um, and, and, and she brought this puppy and she said, um, I'm trying to find a home for this, this little guy. Uh, we, we've got a cage for him. We got his shots already. We got um, even some food all ready to go. And I looked at Bree and I said, we should take that dog home. And we had not really discussed it. We weren't planning on going home with the dog that day, but we did. We took the dog home, and we named him Toby, and Toby turned our world upside down. Uh, we were living in a condo, and um, l- luckily the first floor of a condo, so that made it a lot um, easier. Um, but uh, all of a sudden, our nights were no longer you know, nights. We were up uh, taking care of this little thing. It was yelping and yipping, and kind of, you know, we had to take it out, and then um, it, it didn't always... Uh, it was very slow at understanding. Toby was very slow at understanding the concept of um, going only out, you know, so it was in and we're cleaning up things. We're like, what is going on right now? And it was two weeks of this that we were like, is this ever going to end? Is this ever going to stop? And we're like both exhausted, we're tired. And if you have had a young, like a brand new puppy that comes home with you, you know how much things uh, kind of shift and change. Well, um, here's the, the, the way that this kind of all uh, came to a head was, um, Bree uh, came to me one day after about two weeks and she says, hey, I have some exciting news for us. And I forget exactly how she shared it, but it was, um, uh, you know, kind of, um, it, was, it was momentous because she said, I am pregnant. And I think within a few sentences after that, we just said, we need to get rid of Toby. Like, we, there's no way we're bringing a baby here and have Toby uh, here. And so we love Toby. We're not going to just drop him off on the side of the road. We're going to find a good home for Toby. But we're like, they, we can't do this. Like, we can't take both of that at the same time. Um, you know, as much as I enjoy little furry guys and, and that, I was way more excited about this little human and having uh, him or her into our house. And so Toby had to go. Now, Little did I know that that was my only opportunity at ever having a dog. Um, Bree has since closed that door. I, I think, you know, uh, you can pray for her. Um, she, uh, you can pray with our kids for her um, because our kids um, are, are working hard, hardcore uh, to the point that um, uh, I shared. Um, some of you know we're, we're in the process of, of purchasing a new house, and the house that we have has a dog washing station, and she's like, we're tearing that thing out. <laughs> she has no desire for it. No, and I'm like, can't we just wash the kids or something? Like, in the meantime, like, they're really dirty. Like, we'll just watch Levi in there. and uh, um, But uh, that was the only chance I had. So it just, it turned everything upside down. Now here's the thing that, that, that why they were saying this phrase is all of a sudden um, certain uh, people uh, were now living differently, right? Different religions were sort of um, being, um, uh, people were, were leaving them and, and, and beginning this, this follower of Jesus. Now there's these communities that they're seeing kind of spring up and this group of people. I mean, it seemed like everything was different. And from their perspective, they were saying this, they're saying the world is turning upside down. But the reality is this, is that inside the church, those that were experiencing it, those that were part of it, it wasn't an upside down shift. What they were experiencing was this is right side up. Right? Those inside the church were recognizing and understanding, man, things are making sense now. Uh, Things that had been toppled over are now being stood back up. Things that were broken are now being restored and redeemed and put back together. And so we're not seeing the world turning upside down. We're seeing the world being right-sized. And all of a sudden, things are where they should be. And this passage, I'll just be honest with you, as we've been coming to it, I've read it many, many, many times, and I kind of knew that this passage was coming. And to be honest, it's sort of... um, Every, I believe this about God's word. Every verse serves a purpose. Every, every word, every letter, everything that God has put in his word, he put for a reason. And so this serves us this morning, 
But to be honest, it was just kind of like simple. I was like, what are we going to look at this morning? Like, what's the, what's the hook? Like, what's the takeaway? What are we doing? And, and what we're going to see this morning is, is really, I kind of just landed here. I think what this is going to do for us this morning is a little reminder of some simple choices that lead to the world being turned right side up again. There's some choices that we're going to see that were made by these men and women who eventually made up the church in these cities, just some very simple choices that they made. And for us, maybe it's just a reminder of some choices that we need to make or continue to make as we want to see our world right-sized, right? To the outside, it looks like it's upside down. To those inside, we understand and know that this is the right side up. And so here's these choices that we're going to see. Let me just do this. I want to read the passage in its entirety. It's 15 verses. It's going to take us just a, just a minute, but I think it's really going to be helpful to have the whole framework um, with it together. So let's look at this. Um, Acts chapter 17, um, verse 1. It says this, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and then saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But then the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Well, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And when these Jews were more noble than in Thessalonica, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word, word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And when the brothers immediately sent, off, sent Paul off on his way in the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there, and those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, as soon as possible, they departed." So here we have our passage for this morning, and we see uh, what is going on, um, and uh, we see in verse 1 that Paul is coming to his new city. So he passes through Amphipolis, he passes through Apollonia, comes through Thessalonica. Thessalonica is, um, is the capital city of the region. Is an important city. I'm sure it was on Paul's map. Like, I gotta go to, I gotta get to Thessalonica. If I can get to Thessalonica, people are going to go from Thessalonica to other areas, other places. And, um, and, and this was an important city for him to get to. And uh, we spent some time as a church studying the letters that were written to the church in Thessalonica. Um, he was not ever able, we don't know of him, able to return to them um, after this happened. But he did write to them again. But this is where the church began here. And Paul had developed a bit of a system 
He had um, some, some uh, things that, that were kind of, it says, as his custom, verse two there, as Paul went in, as was his custom, what did he do? He went to the synagogue for three Sabbaths. So the course, over the course of three weeks, every Sabbath, he would go to the synagogue and he would open up scripture and he would reason with all those in attendance as to who the Messiah is, what the, the Old Testament had said about Messiah and, and who he was. And then he was making the case that Jesus was this Messiah, right? He says, explaining to them, proving that it was necessary for Christ to die, to suffer, to rise from the dead. And then saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you, he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And this is where we see sort of the first choice that led to this right-sized world. And it's very simple. I, said, I told you that from the beginning. It's, it's this, it's examining the scriptures, the people that he was teaching and sharing with responded by examining the scriptures. They were listening. They were engaged. They were reasoning with him. And many, it says in verse four, that they were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. They responded to it. And so they were examining the scriptures. And we sort of see kind of two different um, responses in this. It's a little differently when it talks about these, uh, this, uh, the people in Berea. Uh, scan your eyes down to verse 10. It says, you know, after they were sent off, they went by night to Berea. When they arrived there, same thing, went to the Jewish synagogue. Now it says, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. I can't wait to see the Bereans and the Thessalonians kind of duke it out someday. You know, like, what do you mean more noble? Um, what that word actually means is that they were more uh, willing to engage. They were um, a little bit more... Um, uh, open-minded, if you will. They were a little bit more analytical. They were um, just their approach to it was, was a little different than those of Thessalonica. And the way that they responded in this, um, this uh, analytical and kind of open-mindedness is that they received the word with all eagerness. You see it there? So in their eagerness, what did they do? It says they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So it wasn't just on Sabbath. They're going home and they're like, you know, looking at it, thinking about it, talking about it, discussing it. They're examining it to see what does it say. Now, this, um, this, this, these two examples, especially the one in Thessalonica, kind of reminds me and makes me think of something that Jesus did with his followers. Actually, Luke, the author of Acts, wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he used the same word that he uses here, in this proclaiming, in this opening, this explaining, the same word that's used there is the same word that he uses to describe what Jesus did with his followers. After Jesus rose from the grave, in Luke 24, it records this. It says, I will put it on the screen for you. It says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That word there, opened, is the same thing that's used here to describe their response. And so they saw for the first time the way that all the scriptures were pointing to the Messiah. Jesus explained it to them. And they're understanding in the same way Paul is explaining it to them. He's proving to them. He's reasoning with them. He's proclaiming this truth to them. And here's the thing for us. There's a decision that you and I need to make, and I would just encourage you to make it, is that we still today need to examine the scriptures. We need to examine the scriptures. Now, shock, like you came to church and the pastor told you to read your Bible, right? 
I'm saying, though, more than just read your Bible, to examine it. Because sometimes, I think we do, we just, we read it, or maybe we don't. If you're not reading it, start with reading it. If you're reading it, I would encourage you to examine it, to actually take some time and dig into it and see what does it say? What does it say about this? How does this connect with this? What does this mean? I've read that before. Why don't I go to this? Or I haven't read that in a while. Why don't I see what this is? Because here's the thing, is that all of Scripture, it says, is God-breathed. And it's profitable for rebuke, for teaching, for training, for correction. All of it is necessary. And notice, again, what Jesus did is he didn't have some of the books that we have today, right? The, 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 what we call the New Testament was not written. He's reading from the law and from the prophets and from poetry. But in that, even in those, he was able to show and explain that everything was written about him and that he was the fulfillment of all that had come before and I think one of the barriers as I've spent time in ministry and working with people of why I see people not engaging with God's word is because they're sort of confused by it. And maybe that's your story. Maybe you've sat down and you've tried to read your Bible and like any other book, you've sort of opened it up and you started at the beginning in Genesis and you're like, it's going okay, like you're reading about this creation account and then there's this flood and then, you know, you get into the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and it's like, you know, kind of cruising along until you maybe get to, uh, I don't know, Leviticus. And you're like, what is all this? Like, why, how do, like, this seems very, you know, cumbersome and, and unrelatable and, and, and I don't understand any of that. And you kind of, if you plod through that, now you're reading numbers and you're, you're all these genealogies and, and counts of people and different things that are happening. And then you get to Deuteronomy. It feels like we're on repeat and we're going back to some of the things that were in Leviticus and, and other things. And then you just, it, it might be sort of confusing if you try and read it like any other book. But let me just tell you, the Bible is not like any other book. Uh, the Bible uh, was written, um, it's actually not just one book, it's, it's really, if you think of it, uh, it's better to think of it as 66 books kind of put together. It's like a little mini library, little mini bookshelf. It was written over the period of, of over 1,500 years. So from the, when the first pages were, were written to the end, it was 1,500 years. And you think about all that transpired and all that changed in that time. It was written by dozens of authors. There's multiple, it's not just one author. I mean, there is an author behind all of it. It's God's word. He's the one who's, but he used human uh, authors to pen these words. It was written on three different continents. It was written in three different languages, but yet all of it tells one cohesive story of God. One cohesive story. I've been through every page on it and multiple times and the more that I study it, the more that I see the way that it connects together and it makes sense. But for some of you, you're like, I don't, I still don't see that. I don't understand. And, and let me, if I could just kind of give you one thing that I think would be very helpful for you um, as, as in, 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 in trying to examine scripture, I think you need to understand where you are in scripture and what it means. Um, let me show you this chart here. Um, this is kind of a visual breakdown of the books of the Bible. Some of you just like kind of got a little nervous sweat back to your like chemistry days or something like that. This is, it, yeah, it obviously resembles the periodic table of elements and all that. I don't really, I know you can't read and see all the small letters. I'm not so worried about that. I wanted you to see sort of the breakdown and in, in the colors. These are the 66 books sort of represented uh, visually here. And notice that each of them is kind of a different category. So this, um, if you want to find this thing later, you can just search. Uh, it's Tim Challey's Visual Theology. I can, I can send it to you too. But those first five books there um, is what we call um, either Torah or Pentateuch. Uh, can you say Pentateuch? 
Pentateuch, yeah, it's a fun word to say. Um, Pentateuch is um, uh, kind of penned by, we, we think, Moses, and it tells um, a, you know, creation through um, the forming of the nation of Israel. And uh, when they were led out of the Exodus to the Promised Land, that is the first five books. And so in there, there's law, in there, there is history, in there, there is, um, you know, the account of some of the things that God did is miracles and, and other things. And so that's, that's, that's the first five. The um, ones there in orange, the next one is history. Um, this tells the story of the nation of Israel and it's forming. Um, there was a period where there was um, what we, uh, the book of Judges. There's rulers that were sort of raised up and would lead for a time, and then Israel would um, uh, sort of rebel, and, um, or the, the ruler would die, Israel would rebel, and, and, and they kind of get into a bit of chaos, and then there was a new ruler that was sort of raised up and leader that would kind of follow. Eventually, they, did, they wanted a king, and so um, some of this is like repeat. It kind of tells the same story twice or from a different perspective and, and, uh, or in a different way, but, but it's all history of... Um, uh, from the forming of the nation of Israel to all the way to exile and kind of people coming back to the land. Then you have the poetry. So Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. It's also called wisdom literature. Um, and so that's a whole different genre of literature. It's written in a different way. It's, it's very different than the history. If you've spent any time in the Psalms, you know it's very different than, um, say, Exodus or something like that. Uh, then uh, we come to the prophets. Now, we sort of call them the major prophets and the minor prophets. If I had written one of them, I would not want mine to be called a minor prophet. Um, you can you know, take that up with, uh, with one of the authors when you uh, see them someday. But um, the, the only difference is the major prophets are just bigger. They were um, longer winded. They uh, apparently had better access to pen and paper or something. But they, um, th- they're, they're longer in that. There was more of a message that was told. The minor prophets are just smaller. So that's how they're grouped. They're, so it's not even in chronological order for the prophets. It's all the big ones are together. All the small ones are together. And it tells of it. it some of it is like, forecasting the exile to come, some of it speaking into the exile, some of it speaking to things that are going to come after the exile and the return back to the nation. But that's kind of the way that the Bible is grouped. In addition to this, we don't have time today, but to understand just the story, the arc, like kind of the, um, the historical narrative of the Bible is super, super helpful. I spent my entire life growing up in church. It wasn't until I was in my Old Testament and New Testament survey class in college that I finally was able to connect dots. I'm like, this would have been helpful. Somebody should have told me this forever ago. And so, um, but understanding kind of what you're reading is really, really helpful. So as we talk about Paul and what he was doing there in Thessalonica, he would have been looking at all these on the, on the left we call the Old Testament. These would have been the books that he was pointing to. And from them, he is showing them, he's going to passages and going to places and saying, look, this is why it was necessary for the Messiah to come and suffer and to die. See, people had different pictures of the Messiah. Some thought he was going to come on, a, on a, like a white horse and set up a kingdom and, and that he was going to overthrow governments and all of that. Others maybe had spent more time in Isaiah and they thought he was going to be a suffering servant and he was going to um, endure some hardships or something like that. But I don't think anybody pictured a Roman cross and a man from Nazareth and the death that he experienced and died there. And Paul is looking at all of Scripture and saying, no, no, look at there's so many places that tell of this death that was to come And more than that, Jesus was the one who fulfilled all of it. So that's the Old Testament. 
we now today, and, and what they were living out, is the New Testament. And so just kind of real quickly through this, just so you have an understanding, those first four books are what we call Gospels. They all tell the story of Jesus. Many of them record his birth. They all talk about his ministry and his life. Some focus in on different things, like Matthew tends to focus a lot on the teaching. And so the um, didactic passages, the Sermon on the Mount and others, there's lots of teaching in Matthew. John sort of, um, he kind of goes off in, in a totally different way, and he talks about other things that aren't in the other, other three. And, um, but all of them put together give four different perspectives of the life and the person, the ministry, and all four record the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so that's what the Gospels are all about. And then we're in the book, um, the only book of history in the New Testament, the book of Acts. And that tells, again, from the time when Christ was uh, resurrected and risen to the forming of the church. Then you have um, all these letters. So the gold ones are all of Paul's letters, or we call them epistles sometimes. If you see the epistle, it's just a fancy way of saying letter. Um, I'm going to start writing people epistles now, um, I think. But, but that's what was going on there, is Paul has written his letters, sometimes to individuals, sometimes to churches. It was often with encouragement, with instruction, with correction, different things. But here's what Scripture says, is that the authors were carried along, Second Peter records, that the authors were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so even though it's penned by a man... It was ultimately God that was leading and kind of going. I like to picture uh, the wind in a sail. Um, and so, yes, the sail is sort of moving, but it's the wind that's carrying it along. That's, that's what that word picture means. And then you have um, the general letters written by, you know, Peter and John and James, and, and um, we're not totally sure who wrote Hebrews, and, and, but these were all recognized very early in the church as Scripture. And it was put together and these lists were formed and they were exchanging these letters together as the churches were, were being built up. And then you have Revelation, which was written by John and it speaks to the things yet to come, the end of times. It's apocalyptic. So I wanted to take some time and sort of go through that. We don't often kind of unpack all of that. Some of you, hopefully that's review. Others of you, you've never seen that before. And you're like, that's super helpful because now when I open up my Bible, I know. So if you're like, you know, in a history book, you know where it is and what it is. And if you're in a, a prophet, you know what it is and what's happening. But, but what I want to say and what, 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 what Paul is saying and what Jesus was saying is that all of it, all of Scripture ultimately is fulfilled in pointing to the Messiah, the person of Jesus Christ. So what you have here is it shows and demonstrates those first five books, the Pentateuch, the law, that the law wasn't sufficient. The law wasn't able to save men and women. In fact, the law was given and it just showed greater need for a savior because no one was able to keep the law. And then it shows what the nation, the people of Israel, even after God had shown his grace and his favor and kind of established them, they're fighting against and trying to set up an earthly king and an earthly kingdom. And God's like, I'm your king. And they're like, well, we want a human king. And so it kind of shows what the result of that is. And it didn't go well for them. Um, the first king was, was not so great. Saul um, was, was not great at all. And then you have David, um, who was, uh, was uh, pretty good, although made his, his share of mistakes. Then you have his son, Solomon, who was, started out okay, but then made some really foolish choices. And then the nation divides, and you have all these kings. Many of them were bad. And it shows how no earthly king is going to 
be the king that we ultimately need. It's fulfilled in Jesus. And then you have the, song, the, the, the wisdom literature, and, and that's kind of looking forward to. Some of it is looking to and showing these pictures of Christ and, and understanding. Then you have the prophets saying and kind of more specifically saying there's a Messiah coming. Like there's the answer that we're looking for. It's coming in this Messiah. So I don't know where, I don't know where Paul um, took um, the, uh, the people to, but I, wanna, I would think that maybe one of the places that he took the church there or the people before they were a church in Thessalonica was to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is a great passage. If you're trying to show that the, the Messiah has to suffer and die, remember, uh, this was written hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, but it says this. Um, I don't have it on the screen, but I'll just read it for you. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I would imagine that Paul is there in Thessalonica and he's opening up this and there, he's like, everyone turn to Isaiah. Let me show you, this is the picture that Isaiah, the prophet, gave us of the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And notice what had to happen. He had to be, he had to suffer. He had to die so that the iniquity, the sin that we've been, could be put on him. It's our sin. And this is why he had to suffer and this is why he died. And then he's like, and I have good news for you. Here's the good news is that that Messiah has come. His name is Jesus. He was just crucified not too long ago, several years ago in Jerusalem. And I have even better news. He's alive. He rose from the grave and he has ascended into heaven. He says he's going to come back and receive his church, receive those who follow him and believe in him. And there's life in him. And so he's, he's reasoning with them and showing them from the scriptures. See, all of scripture is pointing to the person of Jesus Christ. Everything before is leading up to the person of Christ. You have the gospels telling the story of Christ and then everything that comes after is the result of the work of Christ and how we as the church, we as his followers are trying to live that out. I just want to encourage you, those of you that are parents and have kids that are downstairs right now, um, this is uh, one of the cool things about our curriculum that we've chosen and we use. It's called the Gospel Project for Kids. And it um, is a three-year journey through the entire Bible. So they start in Genesis, they work all the way through Revelation. Um, and in that, each and every week, there's a Christ connection. It shows how Jesus either fulfills the promise that is, is done. It, it, he's the perfect um, example of the, the example that was given. He is um, uh, the, the, the answer to the question that's being asked. He is, I mean, it's all pointing and showing, hey, it's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying. He's like, look at, you know, we didn't understand. We didn't know this. We've been studying these, these scriptures for our whole life. And I want to tell you that it is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And they were examining it and they saw that. Now, I know I've spent some, um, the bulk of our time here and the rest are going to come kind of quickly because everything flows from this. If we start and we begin in Scripture, then some of these other things are the result of our examining of Scripture. So can I just encourage you? <laughs> can I encourage you to take the time and to be intentional and to examine Scripture in your own life? And you might be approaching it maybe like the church in Thessalonica. You get the sense that they were a little bit more skeptical, right? 
It uses words like Paul had to explain it to them, proving to them, proclaiming to them. It says some of them were persuaded. So your natural bent might be one of skepticism. Maybe you approach the word of God and you're just skeptical about it. I'm guessing that's probably um, how you approach the rest of life too, right? Maybe you're just a skeptical person, like it's right until proven wrong, right? Prove it to me. That's not all bad, but I think, I think what you gotta do then is do the hard work of looking at it, examine it, hear from it. See, the Bible never asks you to suspend critical thinking as you approach it. In fact, the truths of Scripture have satisfied some of the greatest minds that have ever lived. I promise you that if you spend the time and look up to it, look into it, the word of God will stand up to the skepticism that you might throw at it. God is big enough for your deepest questions. I don't think you're going to stump him. You're not going to ask him a question and be like, I never thought of that before. Like you're the first person in all of history that's ever thought that before. I just really don't think any of us are going to, are going to approach that. And I'm not trying to make light of your skepticism. I know you have real questions and real things that you're searching. What I'm encouraging you to do is don't just like have the questions, but then take them to Scripture and ask or get some resources, get some help, set up a meeting with, with someone who's been walking with Jesus for a little long. I'd be happy to meet you. Let's open the Scriptures together and see what does it say. Let's examine it together. And those of you, maybe you're not like the Thessalonians. Maybe you're more like the Bereans, and you approach it with eagerness. And similarly, I would encourage you, in your eagerness, don't just take it all in, but to examine it. Take the time. Understand it. What does it mean? What does it say? That's what they were doing. We've used this term, like, be like a Berean. Have you ever heard that? Or like this Berean ministry, right? It's because they were intentional, and um, they examined the Scriptures to see if these things were so. They examined the Scriptures. I would encourage you to, to, to do that. And here's the rest of them. They're going to come... Uh, quicker for us, but the, the next thing that kind of comes as a result of that then, this next choice that they made was to look to Jesus. The scriptures took them to Jesus. And, and examining the scriptures, they saw that, that the Christ did have to suffer and that the Messiah did have to die. And they saw that that was Jesus. They looked to Jesus 2 Corinthians says this, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, was not yes and no, but in him it's always yes. For the, all the promises of God find their yes in him. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. I'm telling you, all of Scripture, it's pointing to Jesus. And we need to look to Jesus. Like, well, how do I do that? Like, what does that mean? What's the practical application of that? I want to look to Jesus. Um, I, I skipped right over this in, in the first service. You can go and just tell anyone who was there because they, they, this is all bonus for you guys. But um, I would encourage you to look at um, the book of John. I love the book of John. But in the book of John, there's kind of these anchor points, which we call the I am statements. Jesus made these I am statements. Have you ever studied these? They're so good. We studied them together as a church several years ago. Many of you weren't here. If you want to find the sermons on it, you certainly could on our website. But, but I would just encourage you to open up scripture and to look at these I am statements and see, because Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Some of you are feeling malnourished and tired and weak and 
you need some help, you need some, and, he, and Jesus says, I am the bread. He says, I am the shepherd, the good shepherd, right, who tends to the sheep. Some of you need a sh- shepherd to, to tend to you and to care for you right now. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There is life in Jesus. We looked at it last week. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus says, I am the vine. I mean, there's all these statements that he's making. I would just encourage you to look to Jesus. As you examine Scripture, see how Jesus would speak into that situation. See how Jesus would answer that question. See how Jesus would do it. Look to Jesus as you study Scripture. That's what they were doing. They were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas because of the work that Jesus had done in their hearts. As they looked to Jesus, they believed. And that's the next thing is they responded in belief. Responding in belief. They chose to believe. And whenever we talk about a belief, I think there's sort of a couple applications of this. One is there's sort of the decision to believe the first time. We talked a little bit about that last week. Some of you, maybe that is the next step that's in front of you. And you're not quite there yet. Maybe you've been toying with it for a while. Maybe you're close. But you have not gone all in on the teachings and person of Jesus. You're still kind of searching. I would just encourage you to keep searching, to keep looking. There is a line that is crossed. It talks about that, that Jesus brings the dead to life. You're either dead or you're alive. And at some point, you need to make a decision. Are you going to believe Jesus is who he says he is? Are you going to believe that he is the Messiah? Are you going to believe that he is alive? Are you going to believe that he forgives sin? Are you going to believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life? There's that first decision that is made. But then there's the ongoing decision that is made to continue to believe that. See, similarly to, I made the decision to, and this is kind of fresh in my mind because we've just been at a marriage conference with, um, with my bride this, this weekend. I made the decision to marry my wife. And there was a time when we were not married. And then as we stood at the altar and we shared our vows and we exchanged rings and we said, I do, we then were married. I began that day unmarried. I ended that night married. And I was so glad to be married, okay? I love being married. But that was a one-time decision. But here's the thing, is that I have to continue to make that decision. I can't say, well, I made that decision forever ago, and that's all that it is now. Uh, I think um, my wife would have something to say about that, right? I gotta continue to be married and continue to do married things and continue to engage in that. Some of you, that's where you're struggling with belief. You made the decision once to believe, but now as things are coming up or other things are kind of happening, do you still believe? Do you still believe that God is able? Do you still believe that he is the hope that you're looking for? Do you still believe that he has the answers? Do you still believe that there is wisdom here, that there is better life in Christ, that that the things that we are uh, pulled to and distracted by are not ultimately going to satisfy? Do we still believe these things? See, they responded in belief and they joined together. I mean, how quickly? It calls them the brothers and the sisters, right? It says they dragged Jason and some of the brothers from the city of, and the authorities. They're like rallying together. They believed. It was a, it was a, a belief that, 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 that worked out into their life. Can I just encourage you to believe? Respond in belief. 
Some of you, for the first time, some of you maybe need to continue to believe that which you said you did so long ago. And then, the fourth thing, this choice they made was to stand through opposition. By this late in the game, in the book of Acts, we should not be surprised when opposition comes, right? It says, but, verse five, but the Jews were jealous and taking some of the wicked men and the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in uproar, they attacked them. This is pretty par for the course. People believe God is working, the church is being formed, opposition comes. Well, they stood in the opposition. They left that place and they went to then preach somewhere else. They went to Berea. The same thing happens Actually, by the same people. Look at verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica, same Jews, right? They learned that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul at Berea. They came there too and agitating and stirring up the crowds. I mean, I read that. And I'm like, man, these guys need to get a life. They followed Paul there and they like tried to disrupt it there. But yet, so many of us know people, know situations, know like circumstances where it's like, That is what their goal is. They want to oppose the work and the will of God. There is opposition that will come when God's work begins to take root. They made the decision to stand firm in that. And the reality is this, is that um, there's a lot of reasons why opposition comes. Sometimes people, I believe, are misinformed. They just don't understand. They don't know. They think it's something different than it is or they've never heard the true hope that's found in Christ. They're misinformed. Sometimes they misunderstand. They think it is something different, right? Man, sometimes when I'm like, well, can you just describe for me what you think I believe? And they describe it, and it's like, man, I would not want to believe that either. That is not what I believe. Like, I just misunderstand what it is. And some of you, maybe that's how you grew up. We've had people come to our church and and, and, and maybe they've kind of been in church or kind of connected before, and they're like, but I've never really understood what Scripture is saying, who Jesus is, what the church is supposed to be and be about. They misunderstood. Sometimes people oppose because they're misled. They think they're going down a path that's going to lead to life, right? They think they're going down a path that's going to lead to their good, and they're being misled, either by others or, or by the enemy or, or by their own hearts. They're just giving into it and they think that it's gonna go somewhere. Or, can I do this? I'm like, I feel like such a pastor right now. Misinformed, misunderstood, misled. Sometimes people oppose just because it's a mystery to them. It's just, it, it's a mystery. They don't get it yet. God needs to do a work in their heart and that work is yet to come and as of now, it's still just a mystery. Either way, they tried to gather opposition against them and the people and the church stood firm in that. Now here's the reality. Is it wasn't all these things, it wasn't just these choices that led to the world being turned upside down, but it was these choices that put that in motion for these churches. And again, it bothered me all week. I'm like, what? God, what do you have for us here in this passage this morning? And then, finally, it just kind of occurred to me, it's like, no, I have this. This is what I have for you. We need to examine the scriptures. We need to look to Jesus. We need to respond in belief and then be ready to stand when opposition comes. And it's more than that, but it's not less than that. And as we engage in this, as we do these things, ultimately, this will lead into what the outside is going to look at and say, the world's being turned upside down 
by these followers of Jesus. But those on the inside, and some of you can testify to this, as you engage with Jesus, as you respond and believe to him, you're going to find that the world is being right side up, that things are making sense. There is direction and there is hope. There is restoration to those things that are broken. I just want to tell you, we declared this last week as we looked at the, the story of Lazarus and then saw it fulfilled in the person of Jesus as he ran out. Like, Jesus is very good at resurrecting dead things. He can bring that which is dead to life again. He can put that which is upside down, right side up. And so though it looks to the outside, though it looks to the world that things are turning upside down, Jesus is in the process of putting it back to the way that it should be. Our relationship with him is broken. And he is restoring it in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Listen, church, there's lots of things that we can put our hands to. There's lots of things that we can be about. But can I just encourage us to come back to these few things and to look to Jesus, to respond to him and be ready to stand. And what's gonna result then is the same thing that resulted here. It's gonna result in a radical community of believers, brothers and sisters united in the person of Jesus Christ who then can affect change around them and have the hope that can never be shaken below them. That is the result of what happens in a life in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the hope that's found in you. God, we look to the example that's been set before us by those that have... Um, Walk before, God, those in the, in the church here in, in Thessalonica and in Berea. God, followers of you have been uh, walking in your ways uh, for generations, God, for centuries. And Lord, today we're still seeking to do the exact same thing. God, we want to examine your word. We want to hear from you in it. And we want to look to your son in the hope that is fulfilled and found in Jesus God, I pray that you would help us to do those things. And Lord, that that would ultimately lead to belief in our life. Not just a cognitive belief, but God, a belief that, that, that changes things. God, a belief that is not stagnant or still, but God, a belief that is leading to motion. God, you are the vine. You say that those that abide in you will have life in you. And so, God, we desire to abide in you. I pray that you would fill us with your life, Jesus. Would you give us that which we need and we can only find in you? God, forgive us for looking other places. God, trying to find that in ourselves. God, trying to find that in the things around us. God, we look only to you. Would you just remind our hearts this morning, God, that there is life in you and in your son, Jesus Christ. God, as we're about to sing, Jesus, you are better. So I pray that you would help us in that. God, that you would remind us of that this fresh this morning. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.